Pretty Policeman, Multiple Paradox Net Files. These are some of The Little Darlings. It's great to be gay. Our favourite episode titles. Right on, sister. Please be gentle. From all three seasons of the logbooks. You might well be very angry. So we've printed them on a t-shirt and a poster. Crash pad needed. Kiss my rump. And our limited stock is for sale at thelogbooks.org. Interested and willing? With profits going to Switchboard. Thank you for being here. So take a look at thelogbooks.org slash shop. This episode contains stories of suicide and racism and historic terms. July the 31st, 1975, Crashpad offered SW1 up to midnight. This is not operational till caller confirms date, ringing back within a month when his flatmate moves out. This is a logbook entry from Switchboard from 1978 and Phil was the volunteer who took the call from Paul. Paul was originally from Leicester and phoned this evening to say he was just being released from hospital after being admitted for trying to commit suicide. He says he is destitute. I have given him three hostels and told him to contact Social Security tomorrow. Paul is 29 who had come to London because he was ridiculed. He certainly doesn't sound camp. It just makes me feel so emotional hearing that. Not only is he feeling like he can't continue anymore, he doesn't have somewhere to to fall back on and at least Switchboard was there to, to talk to him. At least he had someone to speak to. You're listening to The Logbooks, stories from Britain's LGBTQ plus history and conversations about being queer today. In partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. I'm Adam Smith. I'm Tash Walker. Switchboard is a helpline for anyone who wants to talk about gender identity or sexuality, whose volunteers began answering the phones back in 1974. They used to write down a record of the calls they had taken in what were known as the logbooks, which date back to its very first day. And we have been looking into them to try to find the stories that give us a sense of what it was like to be LGBTQ plus from 1974 onwards. This is episode one, Crash Pad Needed. And we're going to be talking about the logbook entries that mention home. That's runaways, rough sleepers, communes, flat shares, crash pads. These stories are so common in the logbooks, as you heard at the top. When Switchboard began in the 1970s, not to mention before then and also since, so many people have been in search of somewhere they feel at home. And Sally was one of them. Here she is with our first story of this episode. I grew up in the north of England, um, between Yorkshire and Derbyshire, often in small villages and towns, and finally settled in um, quite a large town in the north called Chesterfield. Hi, I'm Sally, I'm 53, I'm a parent and a lesbian and a vegetarian. In the 70s, at that time, growing up as a young lesbian, there really wasn't anything on offer. 
I didn't think I was unique, but I wasn't sure how many people there were that were like me. And I certainly didn't know anybody at that age that was out, either my age or older. And in the press, you didn't never saw any positive role models at all. If there was anything, it would be a chap and it would be usually in a com- comedy or something, somebody like Larry Grayson. And I, I didn't relate to any of the images. We moved around a lot because my mum had mental health problems and we'd be fine for a few weeks, sometimes a few months, and then she'd get very stressed and she would give the keys in to the local authority and then we'd be put in care for a bit and then we'd return home again and the same thing would happen again and again. I left home at 16, I'd I'd had enough because my mum was physically and emotionally abusive and I just had enough at that point. So I packed a carrier bag and I went to social services. My mum said to social services that she thought I was gay and they weren't very interested in that. They just said, look, it's of no concern to us whether you are or not, which in a sense was uh, it was a, a good response at the time but it would be much better if they could have said if you are here's services that are available to you do you want to talk to anybody about it so it was acknowledging it but not really helping me with it people often have to make a decision as to whether they stay at home and hide or leave just as tim and elaine told us In the late 70s, many LGBT people still lived in fear and and were terrified of what might happen if they came out. So I think what's really interesting is people came out later. People stayed at home. People hid their identities. I was born in 1945, just as the war ended. In fact, I was born on VE Day, so I can't lie about my age. Hello everybody, my name is Elaine and I was born in Leytonstone and when I got married I moved to Leytonstone, another part. I lived in an extended community with my sister in the house next door and her three children. On the other side my friend Jean lived with her daughter. So it was a very community focused time. Anything outside of my own world was quite a shock really and having this sudden realisation that I was in the wrong life was really scary. I was married, I had a son of ten. I had what my brother described as a hothouse affair with another woman in 1981. And from that time, I realised the life that I wanted to have was a different life from the life I had currently. And that's why some people decide to leave home or run away from home. We've got an entry here from the 11th of June, 1982, and David was the volunteer that took the notes. And he's written, I had a call from a 19-year-old in Ashford who has been thrown out of home this evening by his parents, who had just discovered. We had a long chat, but he will probably phone back tomorrow for long-term advice. Luckily, he seemed reasonably together about his situation and was reconciled to spending the night in his mini. Imagine taking a call like that and not having anywhere to direct someone to other than their Mini, which, I mean, it's lucky that he has a car as well. 
you know, this is the hidden homelessness. This is, you know, no one, no outreach worker is going to find you if you're sleeping in the back of your car. But obviously you do feel much safer than going on, like, sleeping rough or, like I say, going into mainstream services. You know, that can be pretty scary if you think you might be met with people who have the same views as your parents or your neighbours or, you know, whatever's thrown you out of home in the first place. My name's Julian House. I'm 63 years old this year. Being gay in 1971-72, when I started to come out, I ran away from home. Similar to thousands upon thousands of young people who were ran away from home because they were either not accepted or couldn't come out at home. When it was all discovered this terrible thing of them loving other boys or loving other girls. You know, so it was a, uh, a lot of people moving to the big city and being lonely and isolated and having no, uh, no support mechanisms at all. I was involved in a big thing at school in that I invited the Gay Liberation Front to address my school debating society at the age of 16. And we had other external speakers from, like, CND, I think. But uh, when it was heard that the Gay Liberation Front were going to uh, come to us in 1971 or 72, Headmaster said, no, 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 it's not allowed, you've got to uh, refuse. So we, the sixth form, being a bolshy lot, turned around and said, no, we're not going to. I was expelled from school for being a corrupting influence upon young, the younger pupils. So I thought, oh, sod it all anyway. In the main, I had a you know, very supportive mother who sort of knew that I was gay from uh, quite an early age, didn't quite approve, uh, thought it was a phase that I might grow out of and all the rest of it, but uh, never really um, stopped me. And so it wasn't as though I was thrown out, I walked out. And I had been involved with the early GLF and the GLF information service and various things and been on marches already and been to uh, the early GLF meetings as a precocious little brat of uh, 16 or so. So I decided to move into a commune in uh, Notting Hill Gate and uh, estranged myself from my parents for nearly a year. Uh, they eventually came and visited me in this commune. My mother did. So, you know, I ran away from home, went off to join the circus. August 27th. 1975. A woman called Mrs Lord phoned, very worried about her possibly gay son, who is down in London. If he phones in to Gay Switchboard, can we try and ensure that he phones her to reassure her that he is okay? His name is Mark. Running away on one level but so many people who came out for the first time who, who, who thought, no, I'm not going to go to the university, uh, for example, you know, because this is not just a working-class phenomena. You know, it's, it's multi-layered and it affects, you know, all strata of society, thinking, I'm going to London that way. I can come out. I wanted to live somewhere where 
I wasn't going to feel like I was the only person where there would be groups and clubs and pubs and social things to do. And and obviously, eventually to, you know, maybe meet somebody that I would have a relationship with. And I didn't feel there was much chance of that in Chesterfield. So I decided I was going to be leaving and probably end up in either London or a large American city. The big cities hoover many of us up. It's the same old story. But in the 70s and influenced by the feminist movement, many women were exploring new ways of living. It was my 20th birthday. I just dumped a boyfriend and I was pretty fed up with the whole trying to be straight thing. I'm Suzanne Chahomsky. I'm 61 years old and I would describe myself as a lesbian. It suddenly occurred to me that actually I didn't have to have a boyfriend if I didn't want one, whereas before it felt like it was kind of compulsory socially, you know, you had to be attached to a man. And I thought, actually, no. And that's the first time I realised it, and then I cut off all my hair. And then I looked in a Coventry bulletin and found there was a women's group meeting that night. So I thought, OK, I'm going to that. One of the girls, Pat, said to me, are you a lesbian? And I said, yes, I am. Are you? And she said, yes, we all are. And I said, oh, I did wonder. <laughs> so that was, that was the night I came out. Then I had a whole group of friends. They lived in a separatist house in Coventry, um, just a bunch of women, and I went and lived with them. A separatist house was a house where there were no men, and they did everything they could to avoid contact with men. It was a kind of a a political movement at the time of women who wanted to kind of get away from a male-dominated world and kind of, like, find out who they really were just by themselves and as lesbians and as, as women. And we did a lot of political work and political thinking... If you were to just um, come into the separatist household, say, just walk in the door, you might find a bunch of women cooking, like, lentil soup, because we were pretty much um, vegetarian. We also used to have consciousness-raising sessions where we all used to tell the truth and people would get upset. There would be a lot of crying and maybe arguments, but we'd get through it and come out the other side of it and actually... It was a very good process. It was a healing process. And also it made us trust each other and feel more able to tell the truth about how we were feeling about things and what was happening. You know, even talking about sexual fantasies and things like that. So it kind of opened up and it felt liberating, actually, but it it wasn't always easy. I guess not everyone can find or build a home like Suzanne did. That's right, and for people who actually needed more help, Switchboard created an accommodation service. Oh, right. So it had files and folders all stacked on top of the volunteers in the small phone room, just like Tony, who remembers exactly what the old office was like. I'm Tony Whitehead. I am 65 years old. I never thought I'd reach 65. If you came to Switchboard 1978, door next door to the bookshop, it opened the door and it's steep steps right in front of you. And I, I think people did attempt to brighten it up and repaint from time to time. My memory is of it being a bit tatty, well used, well used. And there was two or three rooms upstairs. The main room with the telephones, 
absolutely packed with files. During the day, particularly, it would be busy. I mean, you could get three people on the phones. I, I'm not sure how many phones there were lined up, three or four, and it could be packed and there'd be people, each one talking on the phone and then files being down and somebody might drop something. This is a logbook reading from September the 26th, 1975. Carl and his mate would be happy to help any lonely person who comes to London by offering temporary accommodation. They are a long-standing affair. Their interests are boating, travelling, etc. They have a large house. He sounds very pleasant. They sound really nice. Travelling, boating, big house, and they sound pleasant. I'd like to meet these people. And my first response is, this is kosher. It's above board, it's welcoming, I'm interested, and I think I'm inclined to trust them. My name's Jonathan Izard, I'm 64 years old, and in 1978 I just moved to London and I was looking for somewhere to live. I wasn't just looking for anywhere to live. I wanted somewhere that I would be comfortable and gay flat share was, that was the term. So I would go to a phone box with my money and put in, oh, what was it, 10p maybe at that time, make the call to Switchboard and say, I'm looking for a gay flat chair. What have you got? Has anything new come in since I last called? Because I might have called two or three days before and nothing else had come in. They'd go through the, uh, you know, through, through the papers, uh, through the books and say, oh, there's something here in SE15 which meant nothing to me. What's SE15? Where is that? I don't know. And they would come out with places that I'd never heard of, like Rotherhithe and Woolwich and Croydon. I thought, Croydon? Is, is that in London? Um, well, no, is the answer to, <laughs> to that. But I probably would have gone there if there was somewhere to live. But it had to be somewhere that I was, yes, comfortable with people I was comfortable with and who, who were comfortable with me too. And so there was an awful lot of sifting through the information, jotting it down, you know, pen and paper, jotting it down while they spoke, and um, do you want to share with three lesbians and four dogs, or vice versa, uh, in Maida Vale? Uh, yeah, maybe, but not really top of my list. And, and sifting through the information, and then, of course, making contact with those people, and then going to see those addresses and meet the people, and I would say eight or nine times out of ten, come away thinking, you must be joking, no. I couldn't live there. Quite often, I would go somewhere and discover, oh, it's a one-bedroom flat, and you want me to sleep on the sofa bed. This is not, this is not home. Or it's a one-bedroom flat, and you want me to share the bed with you. No, that's not what my understanding of what was on offer. Um, so there was a lot of wasted time. I'm Lisa Power. I'm a dyke who's been around for donkey's years. I was on switchboard between 1979 and 1984. I loved the switchboard accommodation service. It was a very useful, very incredible service, but it was also quite fraught at times because there were a lot of rules about what you could and couldn't take. May 14th, 1975. Macintosh phoned to ask if he was still listed under crash pads. He isn't and would like his name re-entered. Side note, he is banned on the crash list. 
we had the accommodation service. We had a huge list at the front of the file of people who were banned from using it because some people would try and use it as a sex service. They'd say they had a room to let and then everyone who went round got grabbed. So uh, anybody who rang up and made an accusation, that was it. They, the person, there was no question of, do, do we hear two sides of this? They were automatically off the list. Here's a, a record of somebody who is offering accommodation and this person says they're offering uh, accommodation for one male between the ages of 18 to 25 uh, and this is a male of the age of 50 who is offering this in Chelsea nice part of town and what's on offer here a bedroom kitchen bathroom ah and everything is shared there's a double bedroom to share a double bedroom plus kitchen and bathroom. The, went, the weekly rent is £10 a week, including food. This is getting more and more suspicious. Other details, 18 to 25, so there's a maximum. You can only be half his age. And it also says not effeminate. That makes me quite... makes me quite angry. Now, this may be kosher and above board as the other one was. It may well be, but there are a lot of a lot of hints there that somebody wants uh, the word that's coming to my mind is exploitation and that just feels just very um dangerous, very unfair, very cruel and uh really touched me. This is a logbook entry from November the 17th, 1975, and Peter was the volunteer who took the call. He says that Richard, a Dutch Indonesian, aged 25, has been suddenly evicted from his Watford lodging. I've given likely places to him to check out for accommodation, but he has to be out by the 18th. I've told him should he find nothing, he should phone us back and we could think about referring him to one of our crash pads for two or three days to help him look around. He's been looking, but he says his Indonesian background has caused people to reject him because he looks to be coloured. I think that most of us in the LGBTQ plus communities know know what it feels like to be judged in one way or another. To add into that, um, that judgment being a door slammed in your face from within your own community must be must be a truly incredibly difficult experience to go through. Some people do just genuinely want to help, even if it's just for a respite or for a trip. Yeah, definitely. There's an entry in the logbooks from um, the 14th of July, 1975, um, where the volunteers noted Fred, who is a counsellor in Aberdeen, um, calling in to say that he's known in the area and openly gay, but um, also very happy for anyone visiting uh, to be given his name and address, and he will gladly provide accommodation um, and uh, would be quite happy to help. I like the way that the volunteer who took the call noted in the entry, I don't think he suggests great sexual expectations, more just a sometimes lonely gay who would like to get some companionship while helping other gay people. Yeah, I guess sometimes you just needed to point that out.
I think I think for me just how much an attempt to find a home or a place to stay was so embedded with risk and the number of entries that we found which talk about sharing a double bed or or asking for a very specific type of person in the ad it's just so glaringly obvious how much trust there was which I think you still really need a lot today you know obviously people are still looking for homes and now today queer people use very different methods from uh, phone and switchboard like they might have done in in the 70s uh, there are facebook groups there are is spare room yeah. you know, websites and apps and and everything like that so flat hunting is very different but what's interesting is that people often do still want to live in a lgbtq plus household or a queer household and some of those facebook groups are specifically for uh, people with the same uh, sexuality or the same gender identity that kind of thing i just think these entries and these memories and commentary on the situation in the past um, just bring to light the ever-pressing need to support those left on the street or in their car or, or just those left without a home which is why we went out and spoke to some people who work in that area today such as the albert kennedy trust now known as akt and the outside project Thirty years ago this year, an ally set AKT up because many young people were facing homelessness after coming out to their parents. I'm Tim Sigsworth. I'm Chief Exec of the Albert Kennedy Trust, now known as AKT. I am passionate about LGBTQ plus rights. AKT provides safe homes and better futures for LGBTQ plus people who are experiencing homelessness or at risk of homelessness. What's changed in terms of the problem is, is very little. The only thing I'm thankful for is there is access to safe homes, support, mentoring and better futures for LGBTQ young people coming out today. If I think about a young person like Josh, Josh came to us after being thrown out by his violent father uh, when he when he came out to him, Josh had to live on the streets. He turned to survival sex and got into the chemsex scene and had acute mental health problems as a result of his experience. When he came to us, the first thing we needed to do was put him in safe housing and take him to a sexual health service. And as a result, Josh found out he was HIV positive at just 17 years of age. So what we did with Josh was we supported him into safe housing, we got him mentoring, we got him a counsellor to help him with his experiences around being diagnosed HIV positive. Suki was a young woman who came to us whose parents had, she'd come out in a, a devoutly religious family and they wanted to send her away to be married. And obviously, as a lesbian, she wanted to hold on to her identity and, and you know, be in a relationship with another woman. So with her, we had to take out a forced marriage protection order to keep her safe. We had to put her in safe housing. And we helped to continue with her education because the thing for Suki was that she was determined to finish her education. And she's now actually um, studying to be a psychologist. So it's absolutely wonderful. Things turned out well for her, but unfortunately she still hasn't been reconciled with her family. My folks are quite old fashioned. Being Asian, I mean, they're quite religious. Uh, I'm Dave, I'm 45 and I like pizza.
The reason why I left my parents' place is I guess we really didn't see eye to eye on things, and they come from a different background. I guess it's like the ultimate sin or or cardinal sin or whatever you want to call it. I've lived in squats. I mean, like good friends who could I mean support me for a while. Obviously. It strains the relationship as well. I mean, especially if you've got one bedroom flat, you know, you want to go to bed early. They want to watch a film, so it's kind of a bit clashing, and and so it's a bit hard as well. Like even like day centers or, or stuff like that. I've, I mean, like sometimes people got dogs or people are drunks. It could just spark off uh, quite easily. The one that I saw in Whitechapel, the guy had a dog, and one guy said, "Oh, the, your dog bit me," and then you know, plate, plates were flying and stuff like that so you didn't want to be in a situation where you know you got caught or stuff like that so I found it quite scary and not a very good I mean I just probably walk away or run away the first thing if I see a fight so yeah so it's not a place that I want to be. Hi my name is Carla Ricola. I use she they pronouns I'm the founder director of the outside project which is an LGBTIQ plus homelessness crisis shelter and community centre that is now based in central London. From the little research that we do have, um, it's estimated that 25% of the homeless population within London are LGBTIQ plus. That's not just youth homelessness, that's across the board. Um, you know, one in four people who are homeless being LGBTIQ plus. Um, which is a huge overrepresentation um, in itself. And I think if you were to look at any other minority and demographic and, and show that as that same kind of representation, it would be classed as a crisis and, and there would be a big response. I'm not quite sure what's gone wrong in, in our campaigning world for, for our services, why there hasn't been a huge response from the system in trying to bring that figure down uh, and trying to explore how that's happened. I mean, these, these reports and these statistics have been out for years. So we've been hearing stories from people about their home life. But we've got to move on to the next episode. Yeah, we're moving on to nightlife, such an important part of life for gay men and lesbians in the 70s. And, of course, the LGBT plus community today. Everyone likes a bit of a dance on a Friday night. <laughs> Calls to Switchboard are confidential, so to bring the logbooks to life, we've changed the callers' names. The Logbooks is produced by Shivani Dave, Adam Smith and Tash Walker, in partnership with Switchboard, the LGBT plus helpline. If you think other people would like the Logbooks, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. These ratings and reviews really help others to discover the show. You can send us your feedback and stories to hello at thelogbooks.org. Our music is by Tom Foskett Barnes and our artwork is by Natalie Dotto. Thanks to Steph Dickers and team at the Bishopsgate Institute. The folks at ACAST. Gareth Mitchell at Imperial College London. The staff and volunteers at Switchboard. And all the contributors who shared their stories. 45 years on, Switchboard continues to take phone calls from 10am to 10pm every day. If you're affected by any of the issues in this podcast or need to discuss anything to do with gender identity or sexuality, you can call Switchboard on 0300 330 0630, email chris at switchboard.lgbt or instant message via switchboard.lgbt where you can also donate money or time to help.